Amen. Would you join me in prayer one more time as we ask God for his help approaching the scriptures. Father, help. We need you. Your word is before us. Your son has spoken. And we pray now for ears to hear. We need your spirit's help. God, would you guide us in your truth? Would you guard us from error? Lord, help us not to step into anything that you have not laid before us. Help us not uh, to, to reinforce our own human beliefs about you that are out of alignment to what you have revealed in Scripture. Lord, speak, we pray, and build your church for the glory of Jesus, your Son. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, exactly seven years ago to this very day, I checked my dates, it's wild, April 16th, 2016, I had a very strange experience. I got stuck on an elevator in Tel Aviv, Israel. Now, I I should let you know, there is actually nothing mechanically wrong about the elevator at all. The electricity was working just fine, everything was clicking, Um, actually it was kind of my fault, Um, all right, it was totally my fault, I had been duly warned, but I completely forgot when I stepped on that elevator that it was the Sabbath, you say, Zeb, why should that matter, that it was the Sabbath when you stepped on that elevator, well, in Israel... They have what they call Shabbat, or Sabbath, elevators. And these elevators are programmed to stop on every single floor. Which means if you're going up to the top, it's going to take you a sweet forever. Which it did. My question there, and I had plenty of time to ponder this question, was why? (laughs) Why in the world would this even be a thing? I mean, is, is reaching out your hand to push an elevator button just way too much work to be done on the Sabbath? That, that, that would just, this would put you out. Well, my question is for you today, is that right? Is this a hyper-stringent idea of what to do and what not to do so much as even extending your arm to press a button and spark an electrical fuse, is this what God intended for us when he instituted the Sabbath? Today, we'll be encountering Jesus, our King, as he spars with the Pharisees and the religious leaders over the true meaning of his Sabbath. And we'll see, of course, that this issue in particular is a lightning rod of an issue, and it will follow him throughout his earthly ministry. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We'll break the seal on Luke 6. We'll be reading verses 1 to 11, and if you're using those church Bibles in the seat backs in front of you, it's page 809, I will apologize. We ordered a bunch of those to be useful. If you don't have a Bible, please take that one as a gift to you, but we've noticed already that they're getting snapped up. That's a good problem. People are taking Bibles, uh, so we, we need to order more. If you're using those church Bibles, again, 809, I'm going to be reading for us from Luke 6, verses 1 to 11. On a Sabbath... 
while he was going through the grain fields, his, speaking of Jesus, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. Some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man with a withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. What a fascinating passage from God's holy word to us. Today, my hope is that we could begin with the end in mind. I'd like us to focus together on four biblical observations about the Sabbath that just flow from this text here in Luke chapter 6. But before we get into those four big ideas, I want to give you two very simple disclaimers. They're, I think, important to note at the outset of our our time together today. I know I'm going to hit that with my arm here. Um, First... Today's message is not, I'll repeat that, not intended to be a comprehensive treatment of the doctrine of the Sabbath. We just don't have enough minutes in our morning for that sort of thing. Uh, Our goal then is not to answer every question that there is about the Sabbath on this Lord's Day. It's to, to faithfully engage this particular passage here in Luke 6. Okay, So I'm not going to be drawing connections between the Sabbath and Sunday as the Lord's Day. That's a beautiful, important truth, uh, but, but that's not what's going on here with Jesus in Luke 6. So we're going to try to stay tethered to our passage. Second thing I'll say at the outset, it, it's this. There are often two insidious and dangerous pitfalls wrapped up in the way that people can respond to God's word. You can do one of two extremes often when you hear the word of God. One response to God's word is legalism. You might be familiar with that word. Legalism. Legalism is when you you would presume to add to what God's word says. And we are experts at this. We love our theological systems. We love uh, to... Um, keep up on the Word of God, our own ideas about what it means, and superimpose them upon what God has said. This is legalism. But there is a, an opposite danger on the other end of the spectrum. Legalism on the one hand, and the, the opposite danger is license. By, by license, what we mean is totally disregarding 
discarding what God's word says altogether. You, you, can, you can heap on top of God's word what it never meant to say, extra stuff, legalism, or you can respond to God's word and say, bah, that's not for today. Or not take it seriously in obedience. Those are the twin and opposite dangers, legalism and license. This morning with our text before us, D, uh, Jesus excuse me, is, is dealing with, he's pushing back against the sin of legalism. So as we begin to explain Luke 6, 1-11 this morning, you might find yourself saying, I'm just putting it out there, you might find yourself thinking internally, wait a minute, why are we not talking about how people can just disregard the Sabbath? They just blow it off and, and other big questions. Like, why aren't you dealing with these issues, Zeb? Well, back to our original point. Our goal this morning is not to answer every question about the Sabbath. Our goal this morning is just to try to understand what Jesus has done. Okay? So if you, you, you feel some questions bubbling up in your heart as we're working through and addressing Jesus, putting the legalists here, the Pharisees and the teacher of the law in their place, know that there will be ample time in God's word to address the opposite sin of license, uh, a sin which if I were to pick, I'd say that we probably struggle with that one, license, more than legalism, but they're both ever before us. All right, with, with my disclaimers and qualifiers out of the way, let's, uh, let, let's see the big picture. Four Sabbath principles that by God's grace I'd like to tease out from the text this morning. I think we've got them up on the screen. Thank you, Bob. Uh, the, the first is this, that the Sabbath is not over. The Sabbath is, has not ended. It is an enduring biblical principle and gift that God has given to us. More on that later. Secondly, I'd like us to see from this passage that the Sabbath is good. It's a good gift that God has given to His people, although, man, have we messed this thing up. Oftentimes, we see God's gift as not a delight, but a burden to us. We ought not to do so. It's enduring the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a good gift from God. Thirdly, we'll see that the Sabbath is not only about ceasing. It's not only about stopping doing stuff. Now, the Sabbath certainly includes that, not, not working and setting aside time to, to honor the Lord, to worship the Lord, but there's more to the Sabbath. And there's an active dimension, not just a stopping dimension to the Sabbath, as we'll see. Lastly, I want us to be reminded that the Sabbath is itself a reminder. The Sabbath is a weekly, regular reminder that holy God has embedded in our life, our cycle, our cadence of living to teach us that God is in control and unless he builds the house, we're just striving in vain. He's in control. All right, let's, let's work through these four items as we work through uh, this text. Our passage opens, if you would look again with me at verses 1 and 2 of Luke 6. Our passage opens with Jesus' disciples doing something that might seem a bit strange to us. What are they doing? They're, they're walking through these fields of grain and they are plucking the heads of the grain and rubbing them in their hands 
Why would they do that? Well, they're hungry. They're following Jesus, and, and, and they need sustenance. I don't know exactly what time of day it was or what they'd been doing before this, but they're, they're hungry, and so they're, they're rubbing these uh, grains of wheat or, or grain in their hands to get the good stuff out and, and to eat them. Now, I don't know if as we read through these verses, verses 1 and 2, if any one of you had uh, little flags going off in your brain, maybe some of you were saying, wait a minute, where I'm from, that's called stealing, right? When you're walking through somebody else's field, and you're picking somebody else's grain, and you're eating it. Well, we've got to remember, and this is, I think, a helpful reminder to us, although God has written Scripture for us, He has not written it to us in the 21st century. This is a very different time. This is a very different culture. This is a very different geographical context. Things worked a little bit different in the first century Palestine than they do now in 21st century America. And actually, this was totally above board. Now, you'll notice that the religious leaders are looking to nail Jesus for something, but they're not nailing him for stealing. Because they all knew what was happening here was totally above board. The Old Testament law made it permissible, in fact, for people to pick grain from a neighbor's field as they passed through, so long as you didn't take a sickle or a threshing fork or some bigger tool and start harvesting the field yourself. You can read more about that in Deuteronomy 23 if you have an inkling to do so. In fact, this was God's good design for caring for his people in the Old Testament. You would leave, as a farmer, you would leave margin at the end of your fields on purpose for this very thing. Now, this passage is not about margin in your fields, but since it's here, I'm just going to, if you'll permit me, make a a drive-by application, just real quick, and we'll keep going. I wonder how many of us are living at capacity. So much so that we've increased our standard of living to the maximum and have not allowed ourselves margin for this sort of thing. Now, I don't know how many of you have fields. I grew up with fields, but I don't have any in, in Washington where I live right now. we got a postage stamp backyard. Ain't nobody eating out of that. What might it look like, however, for me to build margin into our life and finances. I'm not talking about giving to the church. I'm talking about being generous and sharing with those who are in need. What, what might that look like? Anyway, we're just, we're just going to leave that there, and we'll keep working our way through the text. Okay? The Pharisees and the religious leaders are all hot and bothered by what Jesus' disciples are doing. Now, no, it's interesting to me in the text. Jesus, it doesn't say that Jesus is doing this. His disciples are doing this, picking the heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands. But what the disciples would do, the rabbi would be held responsible for. And so they call him on it. Philip Ryken, from the, writing for the Reformed Expository Commentary, a fantastic resource. I'd highly recommend that if you're involved in a deep Bible study and looking for some clarity. Philip Ryken calls this, or calls them, the self-appointed Sabbath police. I love that. Listen to how he puts it. Why did the Pharisees think that picking grain was against the law? The answer is that they had developed their own list 
of regulations for keeping the Sabbath. To make sure that they did not violate the fourth commandment, they specified all the different ways that someone could break the Sabbath and then avoided these activities. Avoiding these activities became their law. According to the Mishnah, the Jewish text, no fewer than 39, listen, 39 different kinds of work were forbidden on the Sabbath. The problem was that this was their law, not God's law. Amen? This is a warning for us, church. Let's just pause and come up for air as we say occasionally. What's this mean for us in 2023? Well, I think this, what the Pharisees are doing here, taking remember legalism, taking God's word and adding to it? This is a perennial peril for us today too. And it should be a warning to us not to do this very dangerous thing. Not to add to God's word. Again, this is the essence of legalism. Note, please, because that word gets thrown around real sloppy sometimes. Note that legalism is not being too strict about things. It's got nothing to do with how serious you are about something. Legalism is going beyond what God has said and adding your own stuff on top of it. God had given one law. Remember the Sabbath day. and Keep it holy. Don't work on that day. And they had constructed their own quite elaborate system, I might add. 39 laws. One law from the Lord, and they built a fence around that, that law with 39 of their own human regulations. Isn't that what's happening? Question. Do we do that? Yeah, we got the same skin on. It looks different for us today, but we are prone to the same legalistic tendencies, particularly in a place like church. Now, um, I think it appropriate as, as a pastor, as a minister of the gospel, that as we're working through a text on legalism and we're trying to apply this in real time to our lives today, that I give you some real life, real time examples. But I got to tell you guys, <laughs> I'm a bit nervous. Because sometimes when church folk who desperately want to believe something to be true have a finger pointed at perhaps something that's slightly out of alignment in their personal theological grid, they get pretty worked up. They killed Jesus for it. So, not doing this with relish, but I think it's faithful now for us to say, okay, well, what are some ways that this might look in the church context today? And I'll give you a couple examples, and if I need to, I can dump in the pulpit. Here's one. King James only. Because after all, you know that Jesus spoke the king's English. I'm sorry, if not meaning to ruffle feathers. The King James translation of the Bible is a faithful and good translation of the Bible. There are some here who use it, and I applaud that. It's faithful. It's good. But Jesus did not speak English, nor did his apostles. As a matter of fact, 
Rather than speaking the high and lofty Hebrew of the day, the New Testament is written for you in Koine Greek, which is called Common Greek. It was the trade language, the lingua franca of the day. Accessible to everyday regular people like you and me. What am I trying to say? The King James Bible, although faithful and good, was not what Jesus was speaking. And if you really want to get close to what Jesus was speaking, run to the Greek. (laughs) Run to the Hebrew. Because that's what was being used. And today we have, by the grace of God, even more faithful, accurate manuscripts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in other places that shed light on how we can better interpret what God has written for us in Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic into our English language today. Jesus and the apostles spoke the common language, and it's okay if we do too. Let me give you another one. I got two more. I call this one the three D's. I'm just going to tack some on. Ready? Diet, dancing, and dress. Man, do we get our feathers ruffled about those those categories. Diet, dancing, and dress. Now, I want to, again, be be appropriate uh, and sensitive here. I know many who, um, who love Jesus and who have been bought by him and changed for all eternity, set apart for eternal life in Christ, who struggle in a profound way with things like drink or substance abuse, those in the recovery community. So I would never presume to say what I'm about to say flippantly, but I just want to remind you by way of drink eating, drinking diet, that Jesus' first miracle was to change water into wine. A few weeks ago, we covered a passage where Jesus used, by way of an example, his ministry and likened it to new wine. Why? Well, because in the Bible, wine is actually a good thing. Imagine that. It's a symbol of joy and gladness and goodness. And like many good things, it can be abused. So please don't take me to say or to think that I'm a lush or that I'm condoning the, the drinking of alcohol or any, uh, uh, to excess. That's a sin. The Bible is very clear about this. But let's just be biblical for a moment. If you wouldn't call Jesus a sinner for drinking my wine, for making wine, for likening his ministry to wine... Let's just be careful not to go too far as we're casting judgment upon others who, in an appropriate way, may be, for instance, having a glass of wine with dinner or something like that. Okay? Nobody's throwing anything at me yet, so I'm going to keep going. You can dancing, dress, right? You can fill in the gaps. Last one. How about this one? The wear of our worship. Where right worship before God takes place. We are, after all, in a room called, affectionately, the sanctuary. Do we need to be here? Is there something implicitly more holy about this space that we're occupying than For instance, if we were to do the same thing, say, out on the grass, outside, on this glorious April morning. 
is this room holy? Is this podium holy? Because the Bible's sitting on it, and it's, I'm preaching from it. Is that communion table holy? Friends, this is a piece of wood, and it's a real handy piece of wood. I like it. Actually, I'd like it a little bigger, but that's, it's great. This room is a gift from God, and we ought to treat it with respect, and there ought to be reverence in here as God's people gather to worship him. But Jesus made it quite clear about the where of our worship. And if you're struggling through this, I want to invite you to reread John chapter 4 this week where Jesus is talking with a woman at the well, and she says, hey, Jesus, I got a problem, because you Jews say that the right place to worship is in Jerusalem, you know, where the temple is. But not us. Not us. Us, we Samaritans believe that you ought to worship in Mount Gerizim over here. Jesus, fix the problem for me. Where's the appropriate place for us to worship? Jesus said, I'm going to tell you what. True worship happens in spirit and in truth, and it's no longer in the new covenant tethered to a place. As a matter of fact, the church is not, has nothing to do with a building, with a facility. You are the church, and guess where the temple is? Well, you're parts of it, like living stones. The temple is you. The people of God, that God is sanctifying and building into a house for His glory. Dare I say, it would be just fine for us to worship out in the grass right now. God would not hear us any less or strike us down with a thunderbolt. We could go all day long, but... um, so far, we're doing all right, and I'm safe, and so let's, let's just, let's continue. Do you get how this is not just an old-timey question? This, this issue of legalism isn't just something that impacted the Pharisees and Jesus and the apostles. No, this is an issue for us today. We wrestle through these things in a very real way, and my plea to you as a pastor here at Friendship Community Church and a minister of the gospel is, let's not add to what God's Word has said. Let's not heap undue burdens upon people that God never meant for them to carry. There is an opposite danger of license, but that's not our passage today. Let's, Let's keep moving. What's the point, Zeb? Well, the point is this. There is a chasm of difference between God's Word and man's rules. Don't ever conflate the two. The Pharisees and the religious leaders say to Jesus, Jesus, your disciples are doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath because picking that grain and rubbing it in their hands constitutes as work. Not lawful according to whom is the question. Now, this is fascinating to me. Look at Jesus' response here in Luke chapter 6. Jesus' response I love it. He he just presumes to beat them at their own game. You see, the the Pharisees and the religious leaders are trying to invoke the Old Testament, albeit incorrectly, to control people and their behavior. 
Jesus not only sets them straight on the Sabbath and its right application, he also uses the Old Testament, which they were experts in, to show them why what he's doing is justified. And Jesus is fun. What's he do? Well, he reaches back into the Old Testament and he cites an example of King David in 1 Samuel 21, 1-6. I'll just put the verses up on the screen. We don't have time to read it all this morning. But Jesus begins to share. Hey, and he says to I love his question. Have you not read? Of course they've read this. I mean, they're experts in the Old Testament and the, and the law and the prophets. Of course they've read this. And he shares the example of David and his men who, running from their lives from King Saul and his tyranny, stumbled upon the tabernacle. And God's chosen and anointed king, David, is starving. He's hungry. He's famished. And he asks, hey, do you have any bread? He asks the priest. Any bread here to eat? Answer, nope. Except, there's this special bread, this consecrated bread called the bread of the presence. But the thing about that bread was that the Old Testament was was pretty clear, and Jesus echoes it here in Luke 6, doesn't he? It was unlawful for anyone but the priests to eat this showbread. But David, with the blessing of the priests, running for his life, the, the anointed future king of Israel is given this bread, he eats it and is sustained. There's a lot more of the story than that, First Samuel 21, but this is where Jesus cites his example for doing what he's doing. So that begs the question, what's Jesus getting at here? Well, he's pointing out, friends, that there is a higher principle at work than the ceremonial laws of the tabernacle. There's something higher at stake here. The ceremonial laws of the tabernacle were biblical. They were good. But here in this case, there was something more important at stake. And the thing that was more important was mercy. You see, there was times when works of mercy are sometimes called works of necessity. These were exceptions to the rule that could be made. For instance, if your ox or your donkey fell in a ditch on the Sabbath. You ever heard of that problem? It's the worst. But you understand, right? I mean, in a first century context, would you just leave it there to die? No. No, there were provisions for that sort of thing. Acts of mercy, works of necessity, where you could pull that thing out from the ditch. The priests would work on the Sabbath. Was that okay? Yeah. God set it up that way. There were times due to necessity and mercy where the spirit of the law would supersede the letter. Which is why, of course, Mark in his gospel, describing the very same account that we're reading through in Luke chapter 6, gives us another, I think, helpful detail. He adds this. He says, Jesus also said, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mark 2, 27. So Jesus here is rightly interpreting the Sabbath 
for these religious experts. He's setting the, the record straight on how, how to frame the Sabbath, how to live out the Sabbath, and he's doing something that Jesus loves to do. He's also making an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says, essentially, if David did this rightfully, if David ate the the bread of the presence, which was lawful for none but the priests to eat, how much more so can David's Lord presume to do something like this? After all, look at verse 5 with me. Jesus calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Wow. I mean, just, just consider with me a moment how explosive that claim is. Let's just walk it through. Who created the Sabbath? Yeah, God. When? We've got to reach way back. To the very beginning, right? When God ordered creation, when God set this whole thing up, He instituted the creation ordinance from the very beginning. And on the seventh day, God rested. Where did the Sabbath come from? God. When God was rearticulating rules for his set apart people, his covenant people, Israel, to live by, he rolled them out and, and he made sure that they would continue living according to the creation mandate, the Sabbath mandate. And the fourth commandment is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You're not to work on that day. Whose Sabbath is it? It's God's. He made it. So here comes Jesus. You getting this? And he's claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. What's he claiming? He's saying, I am one with God. The creator and giver of the Sabbath? Yeah, I'm Lord over the Sabbath. That was me. Jesus, listen now, Jesus nails the Pharisees on two counts. And I've got them written up here for you if you're a note taker gets the religious leaders on two separate accounts, or two counts. First one, he says to them effectively, first, you're wrong about the law. You're wrong about the Sabbath law and how to apply it. You have taken God's law and gone way far beyond what it was intended. You're out of the right zip code now. 39 man-made rules. First, you're wrong about the Sabbath, but then Jesus says, you're also wrong about the Sabbath giver. I'll go back to his punchline here, chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus said, this is what it's all about. I am Lord of the Sabbath. Friends, I think this is key for us to understand. By saying, by Jesus saying that he is Lord of the Sabbath, he is not saying that he is abolishing the Sabbath. And that's how some people take this scripture. Now that Jesus is here, he's fulfilled the Sabbath. See you, Sabbath. I, I didn't read that. He didn't say he was getting rid of the Sabbath, did he? He didn't say that the Sabbath was drying up and blowing away. What did he say? He said... I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath's master. That's what Lord means. I'm the ruler of the Sabbath. 
I'm the Sabbath sovereign. This is so important for us as new covenant saints to have in our theological grids rightly. Jesus does not dismiss the Sabbath. Jesus does not delete the Sabbath. Jesus says, I am in charge of it. I like how R.C. Ryle, the famous British theologian, puts it. He, um, he uses this analogy, and I think this is very useful. I've got it up here again, and we've got it up here again on the screens for you. Ryle writes this. Remember, this is just an analogy. All analogies are faulty at some level, but some are useful. I think this one's useful. The architect, Ryle writes, who repairs a building and restores it to his proper use is not the destroyer of it, but the preserver. Isn't that true? You ever flipped a house? Some of you are in the the building trade. You go into an old dilapidated building, and i got to tell you, friends, the Institute of the Sabbath had become an old dilapidated building as the Pharisees had run roughshod over it. And what did Jesus do? He comes in, and He restores it, and He builds it, and He brings it back into proper use. To delete it? No. To, To preserve it. Which brings us, I think, full circle. We're back to these big principles and we'll end with these. The Sabbath, friends, has not ended. The Sabbath is an enduring biblical principle. You say, prove it, Zeb. Okay. Well, I better be using my Bible to do this. First of all, we've been talking about the when of the Sabbath. When was the Sabbath instituted by Most High God? Well, let's see. Before the fall, right? Before sin entered the human race, before the law, God baked Sabbath into the very fabric of the created order. Okay. When does it go away? I'd like to know. I mean, you could just tell me. I can't find a shred of biblical evidence for it. As a matter of fact, listen to how Hebrews, New Testament, how Hebrews chapter 4 describes heaven, our eternal, never-ending inheritance with Christ. Hebrews 4.9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest. For the people of God. When does the Sabbath end? Never! The Sabbath was started before the wheels came off the bus of creation. Before the fall. Before the law. The Sabbath has always been God's way of His creation functioning and ordering. And in heaven forever and ever and ever. God says, let me tell you what it's going to be like. It's going to be like the Sabbath. Heaven is our eternal Sabbath rest. Friends, you're going to have a hard time making a biblical case that the Sabbath has been completely abolished. Jesus says, I'm not the end of the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of it. Second biblical principle 
that we see in response to these legalists, the Pharisees and the the teachers of the law, is this. The Sabbath, friends, is meant to be a good gift. The Sabbath is good. It is not intended to be a burden. God made Sabbath for blessing, not for burden. I stumbled across as I was uh, doing research for this sermon, a very simple, straightforward quote by a, by a famous individual. I, I think you will know her name. Let me just give you the quote. Ready? I hate Sundays. Know who said that? Laura Ingalls Wilder. I was a little bit flabbergasted. I was like... <laughs> Did some research, and she, she devotes an entire chapter of it in one of her books. I don't know which one. You just go find it, right? But it's chapter 5 in one of these books. I, I found it online. To, to talking about how stuffy and joyless Sundays were in her home. You couldn't smile. You couldn't laugh. Sometimes religious folk will squeeze the life out of a good gift. God gives his people. I hate Sundays. You were intended to hate Sundays. Listen, the Sabbath is meant to be the best day of the week. It's a day that God made and set aside for us to rest and to worship and to enjoy communion with our Maker. It's a joy. It's a good gift. It's the best day. Not a joyless, austere punishment. And this is precisely what Jesus shows in the the following account here with the man with the withered hand. Look look at verse 6. This man, his right hand is withered. Why did they tell us it was his right hand? I I don't know. Usually people are mostly right-handed and the right hand in the Bible often signifies someone's strong hand. Probably a flag to tell us that this man's strength was, I mean, he he was in hard shape. His strong hand, his right hand is withered. Verse 9, the Pharisees, just looking to trap him, right? Just looking to trap Jesus to see if he'll heal on the Sabbath. Jesus poses a question uh, question to them. Excuse me, look at verse 9. He says to them, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil, to save life or to destroy it? You understand how brilliant Jesus' question is? Jesus is cutting to the very heart of the matter. He's asking them, essentially, was the Sabbath intended for good or for harm? For saving or for destroying? And the obvious answer is, God made it good. God made the Sabbath good. And then Jesus makes a public spectacle of him. He says to the man, hey, come on up here. He's going to do it in the sight of everybody. Stand here with your withered arm. Your withered hand. And Jesus, after asking this question, it says, looks at them all. You know, I, I, I don't have a concept for the look in Jesus' eye during that pregnant pause. But man, he looks at them all. They're too humiliated to answer because everyone knows God made the Sabbath good. Our good God made the Sabbath good. And then, you know what Jesus does to heal this guy? Answer, no work. 
What's Jesus do? He speaks. Now surely, even the stuffy religious Pharisees would not presume to say, speaking was work. Friends, here is Jesus, God the Son, rightly interpreting, rightly practicing the Sabbath. And he asks, is the Sabbath for healing? Answer, yes. It's for healing. It's for restoration. It's for life. It's for rest, not for death. That's the third principle we see. The Sabbath, listen, this might be maybe a different way to think about the Sabbath than some of us are used to. The Sabbath isn't only for ceasing. The Sabbath isn't only about stopping doing stuff. That's part of it. Don't work. Rest. But there is a positive, active dimension to Sabbath keeping. And Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the right interpreter of the Sabbath, comes and shows us in color. He says, the Sabbath is also, in addition to stopping your work, in addition to resting, it's about doing positively, actively, the things that God has ordained. Well, what has God ordained on the Sabbath? To worship. To rest. You know, you got to set out to do that. I guess except when I'm like in my chair at night, then it just sneaks up on me. But you you got to set out to do that. And the Sabbath is also, Jesus shows us crystal clear, a day to show mercy. Matthew 23, 23 and 30, uh, 24. Let me just read this passage to you in a parallel gospel account. Jesus is speaking to the same group of folks, the Pharisees, and he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, listen to what they're tithing now, you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Is that how you say it? Cumin? Yeah? Good. You tithe your garden mints, your garden herbs, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. What's what's weightier than than tithing? Tithing's biblical, yeah. But there's something more important. The weightier matters of the law, which Jesus identifies as justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Jesus didn't hold back punches, did he? Here's the bottom line. Friends, the Sabbath is not just a passive thing. It's meant for us to also be an active thing in the ways that God has ordained. In rest, in life-giving, worshipful ways. What's that look like, Zeb? Let me give you just a couple simple applications. First, we've got a foster care meeting coming up early next month on May 7th. And as a foster care parent, I can't think of a better way than to extend mercy to those in need, children in our community who are in a terrible situation, who need a a safe and loving home, who need to know what it's like for folks to pray over them and to share a meal and to give them a safe space. 
Now, I would never presume, this be a little bit legalistic of me to presume that everybody in this room is going to be a foster parent. But I just want to give you some examples of what this might look like. Maybe exercising mercy is beginning to learn more about the process or how to support people in the process. Do you know? You can be respite, a respite home or family for those who, who aren't ready or it's not the right situation for them to take somebody into their home, but you can support and get certified to, to watch them for a day or a weekend while, while the foster care parents go out of town or to provide some much-needed help. Man, I am praying that we as a church would grow in what James calls true religion, caring for widows and orphans around here. Foster care. It's a beautiful way to exercise the ministry of mercy. You know another one? Ministry to the elderly. Our ladies' Sunday school class is beginning to get this up off the ground again. I'm super excited about um, a group that'll go to the Presbyterian Senior Care up to Southmont and other places and and provide uh, singing and and chapel services and all that kind of thing. We're We're still just putting the pieces together. Ministry to the elderly, bus ministry to those who need transportation. Bernie is fantastic. He helps us coordinate that here and and would love more drivers to to help out with that sort of thing. What is this? This is ministry of mercy. It's a great thing to do on the Sabbath. How about the ministry of welcoming? Just a few weeks ago, I got their permission to share this by way of example. On Palm Sunday, there was a young man who is a PhD student at um, at the University of Pittsburgh. His home is Iran. His name is Nima. Nima is here studying mathematics, leaving all his family and all he knows at home back in Iran. Nima is lonely. Nima is in desperate need of a home-cooked meal. And Nima is searching for the truth. He's Muslim in name only, but he was here drinking in what we were sharing like a fire hose a few weeks back. And he stayed with Sandy and Rodney Huffman through a ministry called PRISM here in town. We'll be sharing more about that, Lord willing, in some days to come. You know, one of the ways that you can show mercy on the Sabbath is is to invite people into your home and to give them food. Maybe to take them to church with you. And there's ministries like that specifically aimed at international students that are fantastic. I'm just giving you some for instances. The Sabbath is not only about stopping stuff. The Sabbath is about doing the right things that God has ordained, especially mercy. All right, last thing. We've got to button this up. The Sabbath is intended to be for us. This is, this is it. A constant reminder to us that God is in control. Jesus does on the Sabbath what no one else could do. No one could fix this man's hand. No one could restore. No no one could could bring this level of healing. What's the point? The point is this. The Sabbath helps to remind us that faith and life doesn't ultimately rest in our shaky hands. Aren't you glad? This is my issue, by the way. I struggle with this in a profound way. 
Sometimes I just work myself up into a frenzy. I become this frenetic basket case when I got too much on my plate and there's so much going on and what am I trying to do? So often I think that my life and my future success, perhaps ministry success even, depends upon my own effort, my own ingenuity. Friends, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Your life, your salvation, and the fruit that you bear doesn't depend upon your effort. Unless the Lord builds the house, labors are striving in vain. I've used this quote before. I'll end with it here today. I love what Martin Luther, the famous reformer, said. Years ago, in the midst of the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther and his, his very dear friend Philip Melanchthon were talking together about what they might do the next day, and, and Philip Melanchthon turns to Martin Luther and says, today, Martin, you and I shall discuss the governance of the universe. He was a real geek, seminary professor, real theology nerd. Martin Luther replied to Philip, no, Philip, today... You and I shall go fishing and leave the governance of the universe to God. See, Lindsay, fishing's good. <laughs> I overused that one, I'm sorry. But you get the point. Isn't the point beautiful? If your salvation depends upon you, if your forward movement, if your sanctification, if the church and its progress is to prevail, it won't be because you white-knuckled your way there. It's okay for you to breathe. It's okay for you to take a day and rest. As a matter of fact, God made you to do it. And when Jesus rightly lays out this beautiful gift called Sabbath to the people of God, the Pharisees' response is, verse 11, fury. That's the Greek word there, which can also be translated unthinking rage. They lose it and start scheming ways to make an end of Him. Friends, Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. And Jesus is Lord over all. And sometimes Jesus will confront us with ways of thinking about life and faith and practice that make us rather uncomfortable. Sometimes He forces us to do it His way, which is so often different than our way. Because He's Lord of the Sabbath. He's Lord of the church. That's how I'd like us to end. Just by singing out that truth as Ruthann comes. We're going to sing, He is exalted. The Lord of the Sabbath, the King of kings and the Lord of lords is exalted. And He is indeed exalted the Lord of all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for time in Your Word this morning, and we thank You, Jesus, that You made the Sabbath, that You preside over it. Thank You for this good gift. Forgive us, Lord, when we get out of alignment. Forgive us when we go beyond what You've said and heap extra rules, suffocating rules on Your good Word. Forgive us for illegalism. Father, and we pray that you would make us people 
who call good what you have called good. Lord of the Sabbath, we ask that you would make us a people who delight in the Sabbath, who delight in doing what we were designed to do on it, in resting, in worshiping, in exercising mercy. Help us, God, to live for you now and all our days. And as we look ahead, Christ, to our eternal Sabbath rest, we pray that you would keep us faithful and seal us for that day by your Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Will you please stand?